I am not sin. I may do sinful things. I may engage in sin, but I am not sin. I am God's creation, created in God's image, and God is not sin, right? So, so accidents, mistakes, inadvertent things, that's not sin. And as I free myself from sin, I draw near to God. Now, this sounds, if you go read John Wesley, just exactly like what he said when he talked about Christian perfection. Did Stacey Hansen ever come and share his Christian perfection series with y'all? He had a really nice series about that. But it's not. John Wesley's book on Christian perfection is about 40 pages. Go get it. Read it. That's what he said. Right? That's why so much of, of the, the early thoughts that these guys did leads into where we are today. As I free myself from the things that get in the way of love, I'm able to love, and I draw nearer not just to God, but to other people. One of the early monks talked about it as a circle. He said, if God is in the center, and all of us are around the circumference of the circle, as we draw nearer to God, we draw nearer to each other. And as we go further from God, the circle gets bigger and we're further from each other as well. We're made in God's image. Since we're made in God's image, it's not possible then to love God without also loving ourselves. And, and this is the reason I've spent so much time about this is humility is going to become a really important thing as well. And, and so often we regard that as disregarding myself, making myself unimportant. But that's not the intention. I'm created in God's image. I'm, God cared enough about me that Jesus came here to save me. Therefore, I must be not worthless. I'm important. And loving myself helps me to love God. It helps me to put all of us into a common place. It allows us to see that if I'm God's creation, and you're God's creation, and you're God's creation, and God loves each of us, it's not that God loves me more than you or you more than me. We're all loved by God, and if I have shortcomings, and if I sin, and, and I want forgiveness, and I, I hope that you will overlook that or help me with that, then I'm obligated to do the same for you. So it helps me to put myself into relationship, into a realistic relationship with the people around me. Arsenault, one of the authors, said that the church is the body of Christ. And if we're all part of that body, then we can't separate love of God and love of others from love of ourselves. Right? It's all parts of the same. Jesus said the great commandment, love other people, love God, love others, love yourself. So this is hard. This is all hard. It's supposed to be hard. Never promised it was going to be easy, right? And it's not the end game. It's the beginning. Love is the start of it, right? This is, this is the thing that, that we begin down the path and we continue to grow throughout our entire life. And we're going to have fits and starts. Gregory of Nyssa, who was a, one of the, the monks of the 6th century, put it this way. He said that at first, we love God out of fear. Like a slave. I call that hell insurance. Right? <laughs> then we go to a place where we serve out of a desire for a reward. Kind of like punch your ticket to heaven. I'm getting something. Finally, I want to get to that place where I'm going to serve God out of friendship as a part of God's household. 
mature relationship. Now, this is not to say that everybody starts as one and goes to the other, but that, that we can progress through our relationship. We might, it, it might take scaring somebody to get them started in that relationship, or they might be drawn out of that, uh, out of that desire for, for heaven, right? And that's, those are all perfectly valid things, but we want to grow into a, a mature relationship. Now, love God, love others, love ourselves. The people around us are not necessarily lovable, right? It takes effort sometimes, but it's a choice. It's a choice to recognize that that cranky person is every bit God's creation, and that I'm going to do my part. I'm going, and it's not a begrudging thing. I'm going to go in love. Abba Agathon told a story that I didn't put on the slide because it was very long, but I'll, I'll, I'll summarize it. He said that, that Agathon was going to the market to sell stuff one day. And he came across a cripple along the road. He said, where are you going? He said, well, the market to sell stuff. He said, well, do me the favor of carrying me with you. So he picked him up and he carried him to the market. And he set him down. And he went about his way with sitting next to him selling stuff. And he sold something. And the cripple said, what'd you get for it? And he told him, he said, well, go buy me this. And he did. He sold something else. And the cripple said, what'd you get for it? He told him, well, go buy me something else. And all day long, he's chewing on his last good nerve, right? <laughs> buy me this, buy me this, buy me this, buy me this. Finally, at the end of the day, it's time to go home. Agathon is heading home. The cripple says, well, would you please take me back to where you found me? Picks him up, takes him back. And this is he's been driving his nuts all day long. He takes him back and he sets him down. And an angel, it turns out he wasn't a cripple, he was an angel. He said, Agathon, you're blessed for having shown love to this person. You know? So the people that, that drive us crazy may, may give us an opportunity to really show that love. And, and this, this love, this life of love is the start, it's not the end game, it's not the end. Now, we can't do this on our own, remember. This takes the, the Holy Spirit helping us. This takes God's assistance. But we can be sure of that. Oswald Chambers, in my utmost for his highest, one of my favorite quotes out there, promises, he, he, he explains the promise in this way. He says that if Jesus ever gave us a command that he would not enable us to fulfill, he would be a liar. And we know that not to be the case. And if we're going to be our inability to be obedient, it means that we're telling God, you haven't taken it all into account, God. And we know not that not to be the case. If we're told, love God, love others, love yourself, and I'm going to help you, then we can't say, oh, but I'm only a poor human, I'm not able. No, 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 I said I'm going to help you. And I told you to do it. Right? So so we can't take that out. This goes directly to part of what humility is about. And to me, as we look at humility more and more today, one of the big aspects of, of pride and humility is the opposite side of things is putting myself in a superior position to somebody else or to God. And if I'm saying, Oh, I, if God says do it, and I'm going to help you, and I say, oh, I can't because, because, that says, oh, no, no, I'm right, and you're wrong, God. Right? It's putting me in a superior position, and that's not the right relationship. 
traveling on a sailing ship. Our life is like the ship. And we're the captain. All our skill, energy, and attention are necessary to avoid shipwreck and arrive in port. The ocean is dangerous and inattention is disastrous upon us. Our ship, however, also needs the wind. It's the wind that fills the sail and moves the ship. And when the two are weighed against each other, the skill of the captain seems very small compared with the contribution of the wind. We need that spirit to move us. We can get out of the path of the wind and crash into the rocks if we choose. It's a cooperative venture, but we have to have the spirit enabling us. And remember, if God said, I'm going to help you do it, then God's going to help you do it. <laughs> and like the captain, our effort is expected. It's not just a matter of, oh, pray for me and I'm not going to do anything. Right? It's not a matter of, oh, I hope God makes this better. It's a matter of, we're all engaged in this. God will not change our heart without our participation. Right? This is sort of, a, I think, maybe a Wesley versus Calvin thing, right? And how different people understood it over the years. We have to work towards having a life of love. A brother said to Ab Anthony, pray for me. The old man said to him, I will have no mercy on you, nor will God have any if you don't make an effort and don't pray to God. You have to participate. You have to strive to avoid sin. You have to strive to love. Right? It's not just going to be a, oh, I wish it were better. You know? I have to make an effort. I have to make a big effort. Because that's the whole goal. Part of this is that doing it is the, is, the, is the end. Now, what about our motivations? Why is it that we're doing things that are charitable and that demonstrate our love? The, the monk struggled with this. This humility thing really came to it. It's like, am I, am I going out to help that cripple on the side of the road? Am I going out to tend to my brother who is who is in distress? Am I going out to to try to do the things that I, I, I understand to be love, motivated by love, or am I doing it motivated by something else? Do I have a pure motive? And and the monks worried. They were like really struggling with this. Am I going out there to do this, or am I trying to get something out of it? Okay? This is one of my favorite comics, Gary Gary. Gary is a retired vampire who moved to the suburbs. And Leopold is extremely frustrated by And he's worried. I mean, I, you know, this kind of shows me the, the, the motivation. Here he is, he's helping the homeless guy. He's going every day, he's helping giving money, he's helping out. But in the end, he's been eating. Right? What's his motivation? Is it love or is it the fat he But they worried about what was their motivation. And, and, and they also then would make a point that because I worry about my motivation, that shouldn't keep me from action. Okay? Just because I'm concerned that I'm not feeding the poor out of a, a genuine, pure-hearted spirit, but because I feel that I'm better than the poor, doesn't change the fact that the poor are hungry. And then you can be fed. And I should go ahead about my business while I work out the stuff inside of me. Right? 
I, I want to have a pure heart about it. I want to have a pure motivation. I want to have the appropriate, I want to have the humility that allows me to approach my brothers and sisters in a loving way. But I'm not there yet. That doesn't change their need. I still have to help meet their need. And I still have to choose to love them while I'm working it out. So humility was the thing in this, this relationship that was one of the key virtues, the key uh, state of mind of, of the desert. And, and I think it's important to always understand that we kind of mess with that word humility so that, that we tend to take humility as this taking on a sense of worthlessness and, and, and uselessness and, and it's like artificially pressing yourself down the monks would worry about this too because they think, well, then you're not valuing yourself as, as, as the creation of God. But also, are you doing that so as to really put yourself in a superior position to the people you're working with? If I say, oh, I'm not worthy, I'm not worthy, I'm not worthy, are you really just calling attention to yourself, right? Why am I doing that? Why am I doing that? Why am I not being realistic? Being humble accepts my faults and accepts my limitations as well as yours. I've got it, you've got it. Okay? I struggle with stuff, you struggle with stuff. But we're all created by God. We're all loved by God. Jesus didn't come for some of us. Jesus came for all of us because God loves all of us. Regardless of our current state. Remember Abba Moses, one of the greatest of the, of the monks, began his life as a robber. Right? So there were, there were change of heart, repentance, is core to salvation. And, and repentance comes from a place that needs it. The humble person is introspective and self-aware, and I would say realistic. The monks talked about reason. They talked about it in a different way than perhaps we do. We talk about reason from maybe a, a Greek, Western, uh, Age of Enlightenment, 18th century approach toward empirical, logical reason. They talk about reason as looking at things the way God looks at it. And that's how you need to think about each other in a reasonable way. <clears throat> and to understand things, trying to look through a lens of what what would God do? What, what, how would God react to this? Okay, so, so, so humility is not putting myself above, not putting myself below, but understanding who I am my shortcomings, my capabilities, and then we're all loved by God. No more, no less. Paul says, For by the grace given to me, I say to every one of you, do not think yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think yourself with sober judgment, in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. Be humble. Be realistic. Don't set yourself up. Don't sell yourself short. Acknowledge that God has given me incredible gifts. The fact that we're walking around, that's an amazing thing. The fact that we're walking around together is even more amazing. Right? And that, that it was given to us. So, so understand where we fit in this scheme. But all the same time, we're not God. So we, we, we have a different sort of relationship there. Some of the sayings that I've I heard from that. What is humility? That it is to forgive your brother who has wronged you before he says he's sorry. 
What does that mean? Think about it. This is a cool thing about the, the sayings from the monks. You have to think about it. What does that say on the surface? What's it say underneath? Forgive your brother who has wronged you before he says he's sorry. If I say, I'm not going to forgive you until you apologize, that's putting me in a position of power above you. I'm being conditional on whether or not I'm going to love and forgive you based on whether or not you come and bow down to me. Okay? You've hurt me. But in order for me to be in a loving relationship again with you, I need to forgive you whether or not you're going to do anything on your side. I'm going to do everything on my side. But you need to, whether you do what's on your side or not, that's between you and God. The devil appears to a monk disguised as an angel of light and said to him, I'm the angel Gabriel, I've been sent to you. But the monk said, Are you sure about that? <laughs> Are you sure you weren't sent to see someone else? I'm not worthy to have an angel sent to me. And the devil ran. Now, the monks were interesting in this, and they really strongly believed in visitation by angels. And that monk, I bet that he could have been convinced. No, no, no. I really have stuff for you. But but they didn't feel like a, an angel was going to come and appeal to their vanity. Oh, I've come to see you. It's more like, I've come and you need to do this. That kind of thing. A hermit was asked, what is humility? He answered, humility is a great work and a work of God. We have to have God's help in order to be that humble person as well. The way of humility is to undertake bodily labor and believe yourself a sinner and make yourself a servant of all. A brother says, what does it mean to be a servant of all? He answers, to be a servant of all is not to look at the sins of others. Always look at your own sins and pray without ceasing. So last week, one of the things we talked a little bit about was the context. A lot of their sayings sound like you've got to do this to be saved. But that's not the case. Is because we're trying all of us together to live a life of love, that life of love leads me to do things. And the one mom will ask the other, what is it that I need to do to get in to, to, to live that life of love? What are the things that I'm lacking? And and then when I think about this particular one, the way to humility is to undertake bodily labor and believe yourself a sinner. The labor is not what makes you humble. The fact that you're willing to go do what needs to be done, the fact that you're willing to go scrub out the toilets, the fact that you're willing to go work in the fields and not say, oh, no, 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 no. I need to be about the business of studying prayer and you need to be out there in the field so that I can do the important work. Not so much. That's putting me above you. The fact that I need to be willing to do the work at hand, whether it's whether it's in the field, whether it's fighting math, whether it's whatever it is, I need to be able to do that work. I need to be willing to go do whatever needs to be done and not be too proud to go do it. I need to understand that I'm a sinner, but also that each of us is, and that, and that I have to be a servant to all. I have to not put myself in a position above somebody. One of the keys of humility is not so much <clears throat> elevating myself as pushing you down. And all of this is really about being in some
peel back several layers of this onion to say, what is my motivation? Why is it that I don't want to go out there and do that? Why do I think you ought to do it instead of me? Is to say, okay, so am I trying to be, to say that I'm better than that? Am I being judgmental? Judgment was very much believed as the role of God. It was God's place to, to make a judgment. And that is to say, one is greater than the other, one is less than the other. They worked so hard to hold off on judgmentalism, being judgmental. That's God's position, right? We don't know what's going on in somebody else's heart. We don't know the struggle that they have. We don't know how hard they may have fought and then fell, or the repentance that comes after the fact. We just know that that person, for good or for bad, is also a creation of God, is loved by God, just like me. And so I need to regard them as a creation of God loved by me. Now, that doesn't mean that there's not consequences for having done stuff, and that heads off into the whole discussion of, 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 uh, of what happens when you, you know, transgress social norms and go steal from one another. And they get cranky about that, but they would not quit being in communion with somebody or to kick them out or something like that. It would still... They're children of God, they're creations of God, and, and we, we have to live in that life of love and not place myself above them because they have sinned, because I do too. In this judgmentalism, they really felt that in being judgmental, that was disturbing the place of God. That was saying, oh, God, you know, I'm going to handle this one. I'm going to take on that place of judgment. You just sit back. I got this one. One of the brethren who had been insulted came to the Abbot Sisuus, insulted him to the scorn that he put upon him, and said, I have set to revenge myself, Father. And the old man began to entreat him to leave vengeance to God. He said, I shall not stay until I have stoutly avenged myself. So the old man said, Since thou hast been up thy mind once for all, let us pray. And rising, he began with these words, God, thou art no longer necessary for us, that thou needst be anxious for us, for we ourselves, as this brother has said, are both willing and able to handle. When the brother heard it, he fell at the old man's feet, seeking pardon and promise that he would contend no more with the man against whom he was angry. When we take it on ourselves, that's putting us, we're taking something that's God's role and say, no, no, I'll handle it, I'll handle it. Humility wasn't passive, it wasn't sitting back and just accepting what comes, it's taking responsibility. And then not being attached to all those things that make us prideful. God is more said, Who sold Joseph into Egypt? A brother replied in the name of his brothers. No, said the old man, it was his humility. Because he could have said, I'm their brother, and objected. But because he kept silent, he sold himself by his humility. It was also his humility that set him up as chief in Egypt. That one you have to think about for a while. But it was, you know, he could have said, no, 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 wait, 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 that's my brother's, I'm not, and then made a mistake, right? But the fact that, that I take responsibility for where I am and, and I use the gift that I'm given helps me to do what I need to do. Now, detachment, this whole notion of living a life of love and, and staying away from stepping back from the things that get in the way 
ties directly into the idea of detachment. I wanted to say a word about that because, because we often think about discipline and the asceticism that, that you, you hear of with the monks, the goofballs, and like the stylites. They were whack jobs. You know, they make a big pillar. The one guy lives on top of the pillar, standing on one leg for 40 years. <laughs> Why? What's the point? And, and the rest of the monks are going looking at him going, Why? <laughs> the idea of detachment is to focus on the, the stuff around us, but without really becoming so attached to it. You know, you don't want to be owned by your possessions. You don't want to be owned by your position. You don't want to be owned by things that you'll put as more important than your relationship with God. Detachment is that whole process of figuring out what to let go of and what to cling tightly to. And, and yeah, they did lots of aesthetic things. They were fasting and prayer vigils and, and, and lots of manual labor. But the focus on this was not to mortify themselves. The focus on this was, because after all, your body was God's creation too. This is not this dualist view of body bad, spirit good. God made the whole lot. Right? And, and oh, by the way, I only got one. And if I mess it up, it's going to be a world of hurt. So, so it wasn't about mortifying the body that kept me from doing things. It was about figuring out what level of discipline, how can I detach from the things of the world to devote my life to love? If I can figure out, if I figure out that the fact that I eat these big meals of a million different things <laughs> every day, well, is that really necessary? Or am I spending all this time and effort working to get this huge variety of food that costs me a lot of money and a lot of time and a lot of effort that I could have been using for something more productive like focusing on love, right? As opposed to focusing on, you know, fancy, fancy, fancy life. The discipline would teach them how to step back from the worldly things. And it would help them figure out what was really necessary. Now, this is not a thing that has gone away. One of I mean, you've heard you've heard lots of people around here talk about Richard Foster's book and celebration discipline. He's talking about exactly the same thing. Discipline helps us to focus. Having having discipline in our life where we focus purposefully on fasting and prayer and on and on, on the, the various disciplines that help us through the day still helps us today. It is that more simplicity about taking the excesses out of our lives that helps us to have a richer and fuller life. And even if you read some of the other authors that are fairly modern day, Thomas Merton and Henry Nouwen, and, and they're all about that too. How do I figure out what's the surplus, what's the stuff that just clutters the house, Look at orders, right? Their house is so cluttered with stuff, and they can't let go of it. What's the hoarder stuff in my life that I need to clean out and get rid of? And detachment helps me to step back from it and let it go. Those of us that in time, through neglect, we lose even the little fervor that we suppose that we have in our set pronunciation. We have become attached to useless, insignificant, and entirely worthless matters. For the love of God and neighbor, appropriating material things as if they were our own, or as if we had not received them from God. What do you have? 
Did you make it? No. God made it. And it was a gift. The things that we find in our life are gifts. Don't brag on them. Right? So, and figure out what of them I don't have to have so tight. What of my stuff don't I need? What of my, what of my, my feelings don't I need? What of my anger don't I need? What of my pride don't I need? So, how do I get to that, that goal of a life of love? That was the big struggle of the Desert Fathers. And they, they worked hard to try to figure this out. And they felt like, if I can take the things out of the way, they get in the way of a life of love, then I can be in a more loving relationship with the people around me, and remember, even the hermits still came together for worship, still came together to look after one another. It's not like they locked themselves in a cave and never talked to somebody else. They would isolate themselves away to have that alone time that they desperately needed to figure some of this out. But they also interacted with each other quite a lot. Right? So how can I how can I live that life of love? Loving myself, loving God, loving God's creation, because we're all God's creation. And we have to value ourselves in this proposition. But we have to do so in, in a realistic way. I have to understand my shortcomings and that you have shortcomings, but that, that doesn't make me better or you better, or make me worthless and you worthless. It means that we're all created by God, and we're all loved by God, and we all have to struggle, and we all have sin in our lives, and we have to, to detach from the things that bind us to that sin and to, to our, 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 our attitudes that free us. Freedom to love, I think, really is the thing that, that the, the monks are looking for. How can I untie myself from the things that are tying me down? So, next week, we'll look at some of those particular attitudes that really did, that they felt like get in the way, so that they could learn to be the people that, that God wants them to be. Questions? I like these guys. They're fun. They really are. <laughs> and, and the collective sayings are just so great. Yeah. If you could put this in perspective for us, this is before the founding of the Catholic Church. Is that correct? Was it about that time? Well, I mean, so the Catholic Church would go on to say that the Catholic Church was founded with Pentecost. And I would go so far as to say that that we can we get sitting here. I've been Catholic a lot longer than we've been Okay. Before all these schisms, there wasn't the Catholic Church, there was the church. But this is, yeah, from a time perspective, this is right around the time of Constantine. Anthony went to the desert in 285, and then we're looking in the early 300s, the first half of the 300s, when, when Christianity became the religion of the empire. Right? So there right in there. And, and the monks of the desert were, were particularly active through late 3rd, 4th, 5th, 6th century, when they were really big. They began to move then from Egypt. They actually went from Egypt back up into Palestine uh, and into Syria and such. But, but Egypt was the sort of center of it. And it was 300s is kind of the genesis. I, I look at the Roman church. Yeah. I'll put it that way. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. My view of the Roman Church was one of pomp and circumstance, if you will. They may not have. 
You know, and, and in some ways, I, I, I've, I've kind of been in the opinion that things have been downhill since Constantine, right? You know, as soon as it becomes official, you do well by doing good. And you make quite a nice position for yourself by being a bishop. Um, and, and yeah, there's some of that. But the other part of that is that don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. That while a broad organization may have have some flaws in it, you do the why, why, why are they doing these things, and where does it come from? And it doesn't necessarily come from a bad place. Uh, I think there's been a lot of these guys are really more Eastern church than Western church. If you go into an Orthodox church, it's all about that. It's all about you know icons everywhere. But what's their purpose? Their purpose is to help me to focus and to contemplate. Their purpose is to uh, allow me the opportunity to be generous. You know? uh, this morning, as I was showering, the, the First Presbyterian Church has their you know sermon on the on the radio, and they were starting a stewardship campaign. They were they were having a section from Exodus where Moses says, "Y'all bring your stuff so we can build the tabernacle." And how everyone was so joyful at the opportunity to give, right? And that that if you were to stop that, that could withhold those people's ability to contribute. And one thing leads to another, and of down the line, it may get perverted through the thousands of years. But the motivations at the start were to give and to allow people an outlet for giving. To revere God and to, to show His appropriate relationship between God and us, and to demonstrate that to the people around. So, so I mean, and that's the high church, low church argument that's been going on all along, right? Um, and some people become enamored of the trappings, and then other people become disenamored because it doesn't feel right. Um, these guys weren't thrown into that. They were into simple, 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 simple. I mean, they lived in a, in a, in a brick hut that looked like six by eight. You know, uh, they would have felt that was probably unnecessary. But they also would never have begrudged people the opportunity to give to God. So it kind of all goes round and round in a, in a, in a lot of string that will never unravel. What else?
share that love with each other and value each other as, as likewise your creation and your beloved creature. Help us to continually grow into members of your family.